Welcome to another episode of the PFC Podcast. The opinions you hear are ours and doesn't necessarily reflect anyone else's. Now on to the podcast. Thanks so much, Dennis. It's uh, it's an honor and pleasure to be here today to, to talk about uh, TBI and ICP management in an austere environment. Um, I am a... Uh, I'm currently a neurointensive care uh, fellow at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. I have uh, been in the Army for just under nine years now, and I, uh, I did my residency at Madigan Army Medical Center in uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. I was briefly assigned to, to Womack Army Medical Center at Fort Bragg for deploying with the 82nd Airborne in 2014 to Afghanistan. Uh, came back and then was uh, was fortunate enough to begin uh, my training at Duke in uh, in intensive care neurology and uh, will be uh, will be returning to the active duty pool uh, here in the in the next couple of months. So today we're going to be talking about traumatic brain injury and specifically <clears throat> traumatic brain injury and its management uh, in austere environments as as part of the uh, prolonged field care paradigm uh, that's that's been growing uh, over the past uh, couple of years and I should start by saying that uh, the the topics that we're going to discuss today are are currently in a in a draft format uh, and will be appearing as the as clinical practice guidelines hopefully within the next couple of months uh, uh, late summer or fall uh, and uh, so a lot of what we'll talk about here today you'll you'll see in the future in uh, in a publication uh, and I should also add that, that traumatic brain injury and, and ICP management is a, is a rapidly evolving field. Uh, so the, what, what gets published will, will likely evolve uh, in, in probably in short order and, and certainly over time uh, as new therapies become available and, and we get more and more data. Neurocritical care, uh, TBI management is, um, is, is, is really a young field and uh, one that's, that's constantly changing as we, as we get more and more information by, by studies that are being conducted. But the purpose of, of this talk today and of the clinical practice guidelines is to present you with the best available uh, guidelines and recommendations for TBI management um, and give you some tools uh, to, to uh, assess and manage these patients in the field as you, as you come across them. So this slide here is uh, is showing us the DOD numbers for traumatic brain injury worldwide, and uh, this was was updated uh, in November of 2016, and it's regularly updated by uh, the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center. So you can see the most recent ones uh, on their on their website online, and what you'll see here is that the overwhelming majority of traumatic brain injury is is mild in nature, and. Uh, while that's a very, very serious condition and, and one that, that warrants its own discussion, what we're going to focus on is actually the moderate and severe uh, traumatic brain injuries. And, and fortunately, they occur uh, in, in much smaller percentages than, uh, than the mild format. But these are the folks that are, are uh, at serious risk of, uh, of, of severe disability uh, and or mortality in the field. And these are the folks that we want you to be able to intervene on and, and maintain for as long as possible until you can get them to more definitive care. So moderate and severe, and especially severe traumatic brain injury, historically has, has been plagued by, by pretty discouraging data. The numbers that I've put up here are uh, 
specifically related to, to penetrating traumatic brain injury, which is a severe form of of, uh, of traumatic brain injury. Uh, though they can oftentimes be uh, be attributed to blunt injury as well. And and as you can see, the the numbers are are are, are pretty grim. Seventy to ninety percent of, of patients will actually die before arriving at the hospital, and half of the patients that get to the the hospital die during attempts at resuscitation in the emergency department. And even if they do survive that initial resuscitation, the likelihood that they're going to undergo some type of neurosurgical procedure like uh, decompressive hemicraniectomy is very low. In civilian trauma uh, centers, as of, as of a paper from 2014, only about 20% of the patients who reach the trauma center uh, will actually undergo some type of neurosurgical procedure, particularly in the, the severe TBI category. And there's a lot of literature that is available that lists the indicators of poor prognosis, and uh, among them is a low post-resuscitation GCS, usually somewhere between three and five, patients of older age, large and unreactive pupils or pupillary asymmetry, and then the presence of hypotension uh, defined as a systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury or, or hypoxia defined as a, a PaO2 of less than 60 millimeters of mercury uh, are associated with twofold increases in mortality from uh, if, if you have either one of those uh, or both uh, in the time for, uh, uh, that the patient sustains the injury to uh, resuscitation in, a, uh, in an emergency department. But with some of the data that we've compiled uh, in, in theater uh, during the recent conflicts, there, there is some reason to be optimistic. And one of the papers that came out a couple of years ago was comparing the Joint Theater Trauma Registry uh, uh, TBI patients, or, or about about 604 of them, to a number of matched uh, uh, TBIs in the civilian data bank or the Surgeon National Trauma Data Bank, and it showed improved mortality uh, among military military TBI casualties as compared to to civilian TBIs. Overall, there was a significant difference, and it was especially notable in in the penetrating category. And the, some of the authors had concluded that the strong emphasis on, on the prevention of secondary brain injury in the pre-hospital setting, the immediate availability of, of medics, for example, may have been one of the, the deciding factors uh, behind the, the improved mortality in, uh, in the military TBI patients versus the, the civilian. The other uh, factor that, that seemed to play a role was the high rate of neurosurgical intervention that, that occurred uh, in the military patients as opposed to uh, the civilian patients where there's still, uh, there's still sort of a, a grim outlook on, on patients that present uh, as severe TBIs. Another paper that had, uh, that had been put out uh, actually specifically looked at this, and this was a number of, uh, of military neurosurgeons, and, and they looked at uh, 137 patients, again, with, with penetrating TBI, and 31 of those patients had a, had a GCS of between three to five, so in the severe category. But what was what was really interesting was that 32% who had presented with that initial GCS score of three to half, uh, five had a Glasgow outcome score of uh, greater than or equal to four after two years, which means that they were essentially functionally independent uh, after they had undergone uh, aggressive neurosurgical management. The point is, I, I think that um, the these folks, if they if they don't die, and again, I. The, it's important to recognize that uh, these are very serious injuries and, 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 and many of these patients will, despite your best efforts, die in the field. But those that you can get through or who make it through the initial injury uh, it, with the proper management and, and the, the expedited uh, evacuation to uh, a higher level of care 
can actually have a, a, a uh, an improved or a meaningful outcome, uh, either surviving the injury or potentially having a, a markedly reduced disability. So the prolonged field care um, clinical practice guidelines are going to focus on a, a number of different um, aspects of, of uh, TBI care in the in the, the austere environment. It's going to focus on the rapid assessment and triage of traumatic brain injury patients. We'll talk about that today, as well as different management options with regard to hemodynamic management, airway, uh, ICP or, or inter, uh, intracranial pressure, infection control, seizures, and, and sodium management. And then lastly, we'll talk a little bit about some transport and evacuation considerations and then some questions about uh, invasive uh, uh, procedures that are uh, that are sometimes done in these patients, and, and whether or not they are appropriate for uh, the prolonged field care situations uh, or role one facilities. We'll start with assessing ICP, and TBI severity is is divided up into um, or can be defined a number of different ways. One of the most common is is by by imaging, which is probably not going to be available to you. Uh, in the, the prolonged field care setting. The other ways in which traumatic brain injury is defined can depend on the duration of, of loss of consciousness, um, the uh, period of time that the patient has an altered uh, level of awareness, or the period of time in which they suffer from a post-traumatic amnesia. A lot of this is, uh, is, is useful in an academic sense, but when you're dealing with somebody who has a traumatic brain injury, uh, especially a moderate or severe one right before you, they're, they're probably not going to be all that helpful. And they're certainly not going to be something that you can use to gauge uh, injury severity uh, at the time of or shortly after uh, the time of injury. Much more useful is the uh, Glasgow Coma Scale. And I think that this is, this is something that, that everybody should know how to calculate uh, quickly and, and, uh, and accurately. And it can be done relatively easily at the same time that, that vital signs are being, are being obtained. What's important to note is when you initially assess your injury, uh, your TBI, and you calculate your GCS, you should also obtain a post-resuscitation GCS, sometimes some simple interventions uh, involving blood pressure, oxygenation, uh, fever if it's, uh, if it's a little bit later in the course of the injury. Sometimes simple interventions that address those problems can have uh, drastic or result in drastic improvement in your patient's, uh, in your patient's GCS. So keep that in mind that the, the initial GCS that you calculate um, uh, compared with the post-resuscitation GCS may be significantly different and, uh, and, and worthy of noting. The GCS will also help you determine whether or not a, a patient is getting worse and, and whether or not you should think about instituting some of the other uh, management interventions that we're going to discuss in, in, uh, in the rest of the talk. So in addition to the clinical exam that you do, obtaining the GCS, performing a, a neurologic exam on the patient, which includes cranial nerve exam, a motor exam, um, and uh, potentially reflexes and, and sensory, though certainly the cranial nerves are, are the most important of the group. There are also a number of non-invasive ways to, to measure ICP. Uh, lumbar puncture, in, for anyone who's, who's ever done one, um, and is, is certainly a means of obtaining an intracranial pressure, but one, it's non-invasive, and two, you don't want to do that in an individual 
when you don't know exactly what's going on inside the skull. In the setting of increased intracranial pressure, the lumbar puncture could actually result in, in a herniation syndrome and leave you in a sticky spot with regard to, uh, to management and make the patient worse. So uh, it's generally recommended that even if you know how to do this, that you stay away from, from trying to stick any needles into the back. Pupillometers are a um, more and more popular tool that are, are fairly cheap and, and uh, easy to come across, and including some, some apps that are available on, uh, on phones nowadays. And they're better at detecting small changes in pupil size. Once you start using medications uh, to address uh, pain and when you start trying to sedate the patient, some of the meds will actually have an effect on the, the size of the pupil. And it can be very difficult, particularly with narcotics, for example, uh, to assess a, the change in a myotic pupil um, that results from the drug effect. In a normal individual, there's typically a, a about 33% change in size with, with your, uh, your swinging flashlight exam. Uh, but in an individual whose ICP gets above 20 millimeters of mercury, that uh, that change in size can de decrease to uh, to as little as 10% or less. So it can become very, very difficult to assess that uh, with the naked eye. Uh, pupillometers, therefore, are a, are a potential tool to help you do that in utilizing uh, the pupillometer to determine uh, the degree of change, the rapidity of the change in the pupil size can sometimes uh, give an indicator as to whether or not the patient is developing uh, uh, elevated ICP or worsened uh, elevations in ICP. One of the most useful tools, I think, uh, for providers in the field is the ability to use ultrasound. Ultrasound in emergency medicine and critical care has really taken off in the past couple of years, and uh, the ability to, to assess uh, for intracranial pressure using optic nerve sheet diameter measurements is, uh, is, is particularly useful in these particular circumstances. There's a, there's a couple of uh, slides, and, uh, and I'll talk about this in a little bit more detail uh, here in just a moment, but uh, optic nerve sheet diameter is, is something that is, uh, you can quickly become proficient in uh, and may aid you uh, in your, your clinical assessment in determining whether or not a patient is developing or has elevated ICP that needs to be intervened on. And in the future, there may be an easier way to uh, utilize modalities such as transcranial Doppler, um, but, uh, but at the moment, it's, uh, it's a little bit too complicated uh, and it's, it's not accurate enough to really determine or help you assess for, for ICP. So it really doesn't have a role in, uh, in, in current uh, ultrasound assessment of, of uh, TBI and ICP. For the, uh, the neurologic assessment, then, the, the goal is, is going to be to rapidly identify the clinical signs and symptoms of, of TBI uh, and any associated trauma, and then to assess TBI severity. There are a number of red flags, such as headache, nausea, vomiting, focal neurologic deficits, meaning uh, weakness on, on one side of the body, weakness in the face or the arm, or weakness in the leg, for example. Um, that should key you into uh, the fact that there is likely... Uh, some underlying brain injury as a result of the, the trauma that the patient has sustained. The best way to, to assess for this is to do a, a detailed examination, to include a detailed neurologic exam, plus the optic nerve sheath diameter measurements. Uh, the, the better way to, or the, uh, the next step down, or the better category would be to do a detailed neurologic assessment, uh, and then to do um, a at least an abbreviated uh, uh, 
pupil exam and, and potentially a fundoscopic evaluation. I'll talk about that here in just a moment. And then at the bare minimum, the, uh, the rapid trauma assessment and the calculation of a GCS and the, and the, the APU score, uh, as well as assessment for TBI uh, red flags and documentation of any red flags that you find uh, is, 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 uh, is recommended. With regard to fundoscopic evaluation, there are, uh, there are a number of cheap uh, and, and fairly easy to use uh, uh, ophthalmoscopes that can, can fit into pockets nowadays. They, they're about the size of pens almost. And learning how to look at the, at the back of the eye is uh, critical to a neurologic assessment. In, in residency, we always used to say that the, the eyes were the, the window to the brain. And assessing for abnormalities such as papilledema or swelling of the, the optic disc uh, or something called spontaneous venous pulsations, which are just small uh, pulsations of the, of the retinal veins, uh, can give you a great idea about whether or not the patient is experiencing um, uh, high pressures as a result of their, their traumatic brain injury. This slide here uh, shows you the difference between a, a normal optic disc and the vessels that arise from it on the, on the left side as compared to a, a patient with, uh, with high pressures uh, on the right side. And you can see that the optic disc margins are, are, are barely perceptible uh, in this image on the right side. And the, the vessels that are emanating very clearly from the normal uh, picture on the, on the left side are very difficult to distinguish. And a quick fundoscopic or ophthalmoscopic exam can reveal these findings for you and in the, in the right setting uh, can support your, your suspicion for high ICP. The, uh, the large vessels that you kind of see at your, at your 12 o'clock and your 6 o'clock uh, on that picture on the left are, are actually the retinal veins that I was just talking about. And there's really, really good data that shows that if you, if you look in somebody's, if you look in the back of somebody's eyes and you see those veins pulsating, uh, then it's really not possible for the patient to have an ICP that's above 20 millimeters of mercury. Conversely, if uh, the patient does not have venous pulsations, that, that, that really is of no value to you. But if you see them, you can rest assured and be relatively certain that uh, the patient that you're examining does not have elevated intracranial pressure. Uh, and serial examinations looking for that finding can sometimes be helpful. This image is, uh, is a depiction of pupillary asymmetry, which is, which is again a key finding in uh, a patient who has traumatic brain injury. And the, the right pupil is, uh, is quite clearly uh, larger than the one on the left side. And, and uh, that, that difference in pupil size is, is really a strong indicator, uh, particularly in the, in the trauma patient, that there is, uh, there is brainstem compression or compression of the third nerve specifically occurring, likely as a result of, uh, of edema, uh, and, and shift the brain tissue to compress that nerve. This is, uh, this is a, a very alarming finding and requires immediate intervention uh, or the patient is, you're, you're likely going to lose your patient as a result of herniation. There are other softer findings that can, can sometimes be appreciated. On the, on the previous image, you, you saw what was called raccoon signs or the, uh, the, the ecchymosis and the bruising around the eyes. This image shows you what's called battle sign, and uh, it results as a, uh, as, um, as a function or as a result of the uh, damage to the posterior auricular artery or rupture of that artery. And it is typically associated with a, uh, with a, uh, a skull fracture. Uh, and oftentimes with skull fractures, uh, if, if the patient is subjected to enough force to fracture the skull, 
uh, there's likely some type of underlying brain injury, whether it be a hematoma of some sort or, uh, or direct injury to the, to the brain tissue itself. So examining the patient and looking for these types of findings can also be helpful. This image is, uh, is, is a quick depiction of how to utilize the, the ultrasound to assess for optic nerve sheet diameter. And it's, it's really quite simple. All you need is, uh, is the ultrasound machine and, a, uh, and a, a linear phased array probe, which is the same probe that you use to, uh, uh, to look for um, uh, vessels when you're attempting to cannulate vessels, IVs, uh, and, and the like. And it's placed uh, in a horizontal fashion over a, over a closed uh, eyelid. Uh, and you uh, basically look for the uh, for a dark shadow in the posterior aspect of the eye uh, that would represent the the optic nerve uh, in the optic nerve sheath. This image depicts the uh, what you would see on ultrasound, and, and you can appreciate the uh, you can appreciate the eye or the vitreous in, in the uh, the middle of the screen is that is that dark circular area, uh, and then posterior to that is is the optic disc, and and all you really need to do is is measure three millimeters back from the the optic disc, and then take a uh, a, a transverse diameter uh, of the of the uh, optic nerve and the optic nerve sheath, and typically depending on on what you're reading, a diameter of five or five point five millimeters or greater is associated with with elevated ICP. In practice, however. There can be a very wide range of, of normal diameters. Uh, so, a in and of itself, uh, I'm not sure that that a uh, a one-time on-the-spot optic nerve sheath diameter measurement is is necessarily going to help you identify ICP. I think this exam is much more valuable uh, if it's done uh, uh, serially or, or repeated over time to assess for changes in the optic nerve sheath diameter or to look for a, a significant asymmetry in the diameter uh, uh, between one optic nerve uh, and the other, which it, those I think are, would be much more likely to key you into increased intracranial pressure in a, in a TBI patient. So we'll move on now and talk a bit about management and uh, we'll start with uh, hemodynamic management. And hemodynamic control is, is probably the most important thing uh, for you to address in a patient uh, who's had a traumatic brain injury. Control hypotension before controlling uh, intracranial pressure. There is, there is a, uh, uh, a desire in a lot of people to jump right on top of the ICP and, and want to give osmotic therapy or, or, or other interventions that specifically address ICP, but you're much more likely to uh, improve uh, cerebral perfusion pressure, which is the difference between MAP and, and intracranial pressure, uh, if you address uh, low blood pressure, then you are addressing the ICP. Not to mention that hypotension is usually not due to traumatic brain injury uh, itself. If it is, it's it's typically very late in, in the course of it when you begin to develop medullary compression from uh, increased swelling and herniation. Oftentimes, however, if you get to the patient early and they're hypotensive, uh, make sure that you look for an alternate source of, of, uh, of blood loss, um, since that's much more likely to, to be the cause, uh, particularly early on. And as, as mentioned earlier, a single recorded systolic blood pressure of less than 90 millimeters of mercury from the time of injury to resuscitation increases the odds of death by, by 2.62 times. So this is this is a, a very serious uh, issue, and it needs to be it needs to be addressed promptly in your traumatic brain injury patients. The minimum approach, or the uh, the, the very least that you want to do, is is stop the bleeding if you can identify a source, and uh, that can be done 
through direct compression, through tourniquet use, uh, and then through, uh, through, through TXA as well. The next step or the, the better recommendation would be to give a, an isotonic or a hypertonic fluid. And it should be noted that when you give fluids, if, if at all possible, avoid hypotonic solutions, uh, which include lactated ringers, um, since the, the hypotonic solutions can actually worsen cerebral edema. If resource limited, however, and, and you don't have anything other than, than something like, like LR, then I would say give what fluid is, is available to you. Um, although certainly uh, a common saline or 0.9% uh, sodium chloride or, or even a hypertonic, if you've, if you've got one of those, uh, one of those solutions would be preferable. But if you are addressing blood pressure issues and you need to try to get that pressure up and that's the only fluid you have, then you can deal with the, the swelling later on. And the best method is, is to actually go with a blood transfusion to replace the lost volume and, and potentially to optimize O2 delivery. And then if, uh, if you are able to get access to, to pressors, which is, is probably unlikely in the, in the PFC setting, uh, those can also help you uh, maintain uh, uh, mean arterial pressures and, and maintain cerebral perfusion pressure in the setting of high ICP. Airway management should be the, uh, should be the next uh, facet of, uh, of a TBI patient that you address. And uh, at, at the very minimum, you are probably going to want to support them with, uh, with positive pressure ventilation using a bag valve mask at a rate of 10 to 12 breaths per minute. Better than that is, uh, is, is, of course, the cricothyroidectomy uh, or the LMA placement if the, if the patient has absent brainstem reflexes. And, and once you get your, your, your crike in place, you're going to want to target uh, an SpO2 of, of greater than 90%. And the, uh, the, the use of end-tidal CO2 monitors is, is more and more prevalent. They're, uh, they're, they're fairly easy uh, to take with you and, and to apply to these patients. You're going to want to target an end-tidal CO2 of about 35 to 40 millimeters of mercury. And then at the, in the best case scenario, if you can get your hands on a, on a ventilator, um, attaching the patient to, to, a, uh, to a vent and using lung protective ventilation, again, targeting an ET uh, or an entitled CO2 of 35 to 40, um, and, uh, and a uh, PaO2 of, of greater than 80 or, a, uh, or an oxygen saturation of, uh, of greater than 95%. You'll notice that those numbers are, are a little bit higher uh, than some of the numbers that I had, had given given earlier. And I, I think that a, a PaO2 of, of greater than 60 or an SpO2 of greater than 90 are, 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 are minimum and better recommendations. But there's more and more data that's available now that says that, that targeting those higher numbers may actually improve outcomes in, uh, in, in TBI patients. So if you can get the patients to those types of numbers, uh, that's, certainly, uh, that's certainly ideal um, as, compared to some of the, as compared to some of the minimum recommendations that we provided earlier. We'll talk a little bit about the, the management of elevated ICP at this point, and, and the goal here is to rapidly recognize and manage intracranial hypertension uh, and to maintain an adequate uh, and stable cerebral perfusion pressures as much as possible. So once again, hypertension is, is, is more important than ICP, so address that first. But if you've adequately addressed that and you feel like that's stable and, and, and you're still concerned about intracranial pressure uh, being elevated, then, uh, then we're going to talk about how to uh, to address the the cerebral edema that's uh, that's likely uh, resulting in the increased intracranial pressure. So at minimum, you're going to want to utilize general measures to prevent and control further elevations in in ICP. And in the setting of elevated ICP, without any other means available to treat it, hyperventilation can be used for for brief periods. 
this used to be much more common, um, but it's it's really fallen to the wayside now because people were doing it for prolonged periods of time and and they were actually shifting uh, from from high uh, uh, ICP and as a result of cerebral edema from the from the vasodilatation that the the uh, the high levels of uh, carbon dioxide were causing to actually constricting the vessels and, and causing additional secondary injury um, from vasoconstriction and and and, uh, and ischemia. Uh, as a result of pushing the the CO2 levels too low, so in a in a pinch or in the absence of of any other type of intervention, the uh, the use of, of hyperventilation is fine. I generally recommend that that you try to confine it to less than ten minutes. It's definitely effective, uh, but it can do more than harm than good if it's used for prolonged periods. Other simple uh, interventions that that can be made is, is elevating the head of bed from from uh, about thirty to sixty degrees. A lot of patients we tend to keep in uh, in in a supine position, but your head injury patients, you actually want to to lift the head of the bed up again, 30 to 60 degrees, and that helps facilitate venous drainage from the uh, from the intracranial spaces and, and keep ICP at a minimum. Keeping the neck in a midline position, uh, a lot of these patients are going to probably end up in C collar, so you, you usually don't have to worry about that too much. But if for some reason you don't put them in a C collar. Uh, keep the keep the head and neck in a midline position, and that will also facilitate venous drainage from the skull. As we talked about earlier, maintaining a uh, a, a PaO2 if you have the ability to measure that a greater than sixty and a uh, an oxygen saturation greater than ninety. Those are the minimum goals. Again, if you can get them above eighty and ninety five percent respectively, that's even better. Maintaining a uh, a PaCO2 or, or an entitled CO2 between thirty five to forty millimeters of mercury. Maintaining core temperature uh, is is also important, and um, most of you are probably aware that uh, that hypothermia is, is is one of the big killers on the battlefield. But you have to be careful in brain injury patients um, with uh, with letting the the temperature get too high. And remember that the the temperature in the brain is is slightly higher than than what you're going to measure. Um, in the rest of the body, so so keeping the temperature between 35 and and, and 37.5 degrees Celsius uh, is is likely the the target temperature for uh, for brain injured patient. And of course, you have to balance that with uh, with other injuries that they sustain. But but keeping them on the cooler end is uh, is is better for preventing secondary injury in the setting of TBI. Glucose levels. Uh, uh, most everyone carries the little portable glucometers, uh, trying to keep glucose levels between 80 and 180. Uh, milligrams per, per deciliter is ideal. I think uh, targeting or preventing hypoglycemia and, and certainly a, a glucose level below uh, 60 to 70 is, uh, is very, very important since the, the brain utilizes uh, glucose to, to keep its cellular machinery running is, uh, is going to help uh, increase the, uh, the likelihood of your, of your patient having a, a good outcome or, or, or not dying in front of you. And rapidly managing any type of, uh, of seizure activity, since seizures can can elevate intracranial pressure, and, and bear in mind that, that sometimes seizure activity can actually uh, can actually occur in a in a uh, non convulsive presentation. In other words, non convulsive status epilepticus. So, if you have a patient that's that's really not improving, uh, or or who you think should be waking up and is not, always always keep that in mind. And if you're worried about uh, about high ICP in, in that setting, then we'll talk about that here in, in a few minutes, but uh, always think about seizure in these patients and, uh, and addressing that early and often. 
So the the better approach is uh, to address elevated ICP is to think about bolusing uh, an any analgesic medications that you have available to you, and specifically your uh, your narcotic pain medications or or your ketamine. I would avoid any type of non-steroidal agents in uh, in these patients since they have an antiplatelet function associated with them and can uh, can theoretically worsen uh, any any type of bleed that's occurring that you you may or may not be aware of in your TBI patients. But bolusing analgesic medications is, is certainly the the uh, first line intervention that we use uh, at the, the hospital that I practice at. And the idea here is that a uh, a patient who is uh, who is agitated or in pain. Um, is probably not going to be cooperative with uh, with what you with what you want to do, or even if even if uh, they're they're relatively calm or calm appearing, uh, if they're hurting, then that's gonna that's gonna raise any intracranial pressure problem that they that they're currently experiencing. So, giving these types of medications uh, uh, and and considering them particularly when you're going to move a patient as well is uh, is I think going to be key to to helping manage uh, ICP in the in, in the prolonged field care setting. This slide here is uh, is just a quick depiction of the the physiologic state of, of cells uh, in, under both normal conditions or, or without uh, uh, high ICPs, and then both in uh, situations where the where the ICP high, is high and, and when the ICP is low. And, and really, what I want you to understand looking at this slide is that um, the therapies that we're going to talk about next, which are the the osmotic therapies, uh, are designed to pull fluid um, from the brain tissue uh, and and shrink those cells, and, and therefore decrease edema. And what you want to avoid is the, is the picture on the right where you have uh, significant cell, cell swelling since, uh, since cells will either uh, die or, or undergo uh, a type of cell suicide uh, under these conditions. And these are certainly the conditions in which uh, intracranial pressure is going to rise. So the, the, best, uh, the best therapy for your uh, elevated ICP patient is going to be to administer osmotic therapy. And I think the first choice is uh, hypertonic saline for a number of reasons. And what's most widely available to, to, to most of you is probably going to be the, the 3% uh, concentration, which is it's commercially available, uh, so it's easy to purchase. And typically, you're going to administer uh, about 250 milliliter bolus uh, over a 15 to 20 minute period. And you can repeat that uh, every three hours as needed for, for high ICPs. There are uh, some institutions and there are some situations where a uh, hypertonic saline uh, infusion is run and it's, it's just as good as it administering as a bolus. But since you're likely going to have limited resources, I, I, I think the best thing to do is to stick to, uh, to bolus dosing uh, in order to conserve what you have available to you. As a second choice, I think mannitol um, is, is, a, is, is your next bet uh, or your next option. And mannitol is, is given as an initial dose or as a bolus dose of, of 1.5 grams per kilogram. It can go IV or IO. And then subsequent doses uh, can, be, can be lowered somewhat to 0.5 grams per kilogram, uh, also IV or IO. And that should be pushed over a 15 to 20 minute period. And it can be dosed every three hours as well. Hypertonic is, I think, preferred largely because uh, it, it, uh, it, does help, um, it does help maintain or improve intravascular volume uh, through its osmotic effect. So in a polytrauma situation, uh, in addition to, to the ICP lowering effect, it may actually help you uh, address uh, hypotension. Whereas mannitol is a, is a diuretic and, and it can result in a pretty profound diuresis and you're going to end up fighting yourself if that's the, if that's the case. 
uh, when you're trying to address hypotension in your patients. Uh, both of them are, are effective at lowering ICP. Uh, so if you if you have one but not the other, uh, uh, specifically if you have mannitol but not hypertonic saline, it's fine. But in general, I think hypertonic saline is the is the preferred agent in these situations. And there are a number of other uh, medications uh, that have been used to address uh, high ICP in patients. There's a couple of there's a couple of papers looking at uh, at, a, at some case series or, or a very limited number of patients um, with some with some agents like sodium bicarbonate, which uh, which a lot of the medics out there will carry. But I think before using any of those agents, you should seek uh, medical direction from a neurosurgeon or a neurocritical care specialist, uh, since the the data behind those is limited, and at least theoretically, there can be some harm uh, that can be done to your patients by administering uh, those agents that, that don't have as much evidence behind them. We'll talk about infection control next, and and your your goal here is is to address. Uh, your wounds uh, to prevent further exposure to environmental pathogens and, and then administer antibiotic prophylaxis uh, specifically to all open or, or penetrating traumatic brain injury patients. So for open or, or penetrating uh, TBI, the, the best agents that, that you may or may not have available to you out there um, are going to be cefazolin or, or ceftriaxone since they have uh, good and well-documented CNS penetration. And then if the, the wound is contaminated with organic debris, adding uh, metronidazole uh, is certainly an option. And the, uh, the use of ertapenem is, is a big question mark um, since that's a, that's a common agent uh, in the field nowadays because it covers so many different types of pathologic organisms. The problem with ertapenem is that it's the, uh, the data supporting its, uh, its CNS penetration uh, is is lacking at this point, and there's there's not a lot of good information about whether or not it can get to the brain tissue uh, the way you would want it to. So until that is that 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 uh, evidence is available, uh, it's it's hard to recommend ertapenem as a as a first line agent. On the other hand, if you're in a situation where you don't have some of these other agents that that uh, that I've been talking about. Uh, and that's all you've got, and you want to get uh, as, as, as many pathologic organisms covered as you possibly can, I would say go ahead and use ertapenem, uh, since we certainly don't have evidence that says that, uh, that it cannot get into the brain. We just don't have enough right now that says that it effectively does. So I would say go ahead and use the ertapenem uh, if you've got nothing else, and, uh, and, and uh, hopefully in the near future we'll have more data about its, uh, its application um, in, in these types of CNS injuries. Antibiotics, it should be noted, are not necessary in traumatic brain injury without penetrating trauma. Um, the only other consideration or the only other time that you might uh, take a patient who doesn't have uh, uh, a, an open or penetrating injury um, to the brain is when there is a, when there's a, a significant penetration into the sinus cavities. Uh, since you can't rule out uh, uh, subsequent penetration into the intracranial cavity, and those are very dirty spaces and are, are at high risk for causing a... Uh, uh, a, a CNS infection. So, but in general, if if you can rule that out, uh, or if you've got somebody who who, who does not have an open or uh, or penetrating injury, you can save the antibiotics for uh, for another time or for another patient. And as a minimum, in these in these patients, you're going to want to address uh, all the wounds to prevent uh, any further wound contamination. And and one thing that I would I would caution you to stay away from is is introducing any material into the wound cavity. 
uh, that's not absolutely necessary. So I wouldn't pack those wounds since you're not sure exactly what, what's underneath that, if it's, if it's close to a sinus or, or a significant blood vessel uh, or, or irrigating with anything that's, uh, that's certainly with anything that's not sterile. I think, uh, I think that's best left to the surgeon to do, and I, I, would, uh, I would recommend against uh, trying to put anything into the uh, inside of the skull in the event of an open or, or penetrating wound. We'll talk for a few minutes now about seizures, and, and the goal is to, uh, as best as possible, rapidly identify and manage seizure activity in TBI patients. And as previously noted, seizures can raise ICP, so keep that in mind if you've got a previously stable patient and uh, and uh, all of a sudden you uh, have changes in their exam and you're concerned about their uh, their ICP increasing. And as a minimum for a witnessed or suspected seizure, you're going to want to use uh, lorazepam or, or midazolam. And, and the doses are a little bit higher than I think a lot of times what we, what we typically use to calm or sedate patients. And a lot of this comes from, uh, from uh, fairly recent literature uh, about addressing status epilepticus uh, or a state of continuous seizure um, with benzodiazepines. And, and what you really want to do is you want to, you want to saturate those, those benzoreceptors in the brain. So uh, if you've got a patient who's seizing, uh, uh, hitting them with 5 to 10 uh, of midazolam IV or IO or 4 milligrams of, uh, of, of lorazepam uh, IV or IO is, is what the current literature is recommending to, to, stop, those, to stop those seizures. The catch here is that when you administer higher doses like that, you're likely going to get a, a pretty um, uh, significant sedation that occurs as a result. So it can impair your ability, particularly with a longer-acting agent like lorazepam, uh, to do your subsequent neuroexamination. So, so keep that in mind if, it's been, if you've had to use that medication or it's been administered recently. But I think in the, in the setting of a seizure, particularly in a TBI patient, uh, you're going to want to go ahead and, and do what you can to stop the seizure activity. And then as a, as a best recommendation for, uh, for witness seizures, you're going to want to add uh, to your benzodiazepine, if available, a longer-acting agent uh, such as, as uh, uh, levetiracetam as a, as a 1,500-milligram load um, and then 1,000 and then every 12 hours. There are certainly other agents that, that might be more readily available um, in, uh, in some of the uh, uh, the the countries that, uh, that that we would expect to be operating in, like like phenytoin, um, and I would uh, I would address that question depending on on what type of uh, of anti-epileptic drug is available to uh, to your consultant uh, in regarding its use in, uh, in in your patient. the The other thing I think is worth noting is that um, it's it's really important I think to consider prophylactic seizure treatment prior to to transportation or movement. One of the last things that, that you're going to want to have to deal with is a, is a patient who starts seizing uh, when they're in the back of your truck and you're, you're trying to move them or, or, or in the air. Um, uh, since this can, this can present a, a real significant problem, not only in regard to ICP, but it can, it can create airway issues as well or oxygenation or ventilation issues. So really consider before any significant movement uh, uh, dosing the, the patient with, uh, with midazolam or, or lorazepam. Uh, to try to head off this problem before it becomes an issue for you. Hypothermia, uh, like we talked about earlier, we're going we're gonna to set a goal of maintaining a core temperature between uh, about 35 to 37 and a half degrees Celsius. And you're going to want to treat hypothermia aggressively in traumatic brain injury patients with, with, a, with a combination of, of different therapies. The best approach would be to, if, if available, is to use um, uh, acetaminophen or, or, or Tylenol. 
uh, and and that can be administered uh, uh, as a as a tablet uh, PO if the patient is able to take PO um, uh, or per rectum is probably the other the other likely route of administration. And uh, cold saline boluses can can be used as well if you're able to cool down the uh, uh, any fluid that you have um, for for refractory hypothermia as well. The next level down, uh, or, or the, uh, the better category, would be to apply cold packs to axillary regions, posterior cervical regions in the groin. And if available, um, uh, things like ice baths can be considered. Uh, 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 but what you want to be careful of is, in, is inducing rapid cooling and, and shivering, which can increase ICP. So if you end up using an ice bath, just be very, very careful about doing so since you don't want to, you don't want to create uh, uh, one of the problems that you're trying to solve. <laughs> As a minimum, uh, getting the, the patient into a, a cooler environment and utilizing surface cooling measures to reduce core body temperature um, and, and inducing evaporative loss by, by misting or fan cooling, um, these, are the, uh, these are the bare minimum interventions that you should be making in a, in a patient that you think uh, has TBI and is, is hyperthermic. Sodium management. Um, the goal here is, is, as alluded to earlier, to avoid hyponatremia, which will increase uh, tissue swelling in the brain. And if you have the ability to, to test for this and to get serum sodium levels, then targeting a serum sodium between 135 and 145 uh, uh, millimoles per liter uh, is, is appropriate. Um, and when hypertonic saline is being used, then, then generally you're going to want to target a, a serum sodium less than, than 160. As you can imagine, giving hypertonic solutions is, is going to increase your serum sodium levels over time. What you don't want is for them to get to a dangerously high level, which is, which is generally considered uh, to be 160 or more. So if you have the ability to monitor and measure that, great. Uh, if not, then, then once again, I think, uh, I, I think in the absence of that type of information, uh, then you just you just treat uh, what you have in front of you, and if you have ICP and an osmotic agent to treat it with in front of you, then then go ahead. Uh, but if you if you have access to labs, then then this can help guide your therapy as well. So as a as a best recommendation, um, you're you're going to want to check if you can uh, sodium labs via regular lab draws. Generally, every six hours is appropriate. Uh, in an unstable patient, you may want to do it uh, a little bit more frequently. Uh, if you're giving uh, hypertonic saline every uh, every three hours or so, uh, as we talked about earlier, and then adjust any fluids as needed to meet the patient's uh, established sodium goals. So this is an instance where, uh, if you are checking labs and your and your levels are high, you may want to balance those high levels with the administration of, of something that's a little more uh, hypotonic, like uh, like LR. But I think in general, um, uh, as stated earlier, you're going to want to stay away from those uh, those types of agent or those types of solutions and if you run into a situation where you're trying to balance your sodium goals with, uh, with the fluid that you're administering, seek expert uh, medical advice in doing so. Uh, the next level down, or the, the better category, would, uh, would be, again, to be uh, to use 0.9% sodium chloride uh, as boluses or as an infusion, again, to, to keep your serum sodium levels um, between 135 and 145. And then as a minimum, you're going to want to avoid the administration uh, of any free water uh, or, or, as we talked about earlier, hypotonic fluids that will lower serum sodium levels. A brief note on, on surgical procedures. So it's, it's come up a couple of times uh, in the course of my career and, and even recently 
uh, talking about the the clinical practice guidelines for for TBI about whether or not non surgeons uh, or non neurosurgeons specifically should be attempting invasive procedures such as such as burr holes or uh, ventriculostomy and I think the consensus certainly at this time is is no there's uh, there's certainly um, harm that can be done by performing these procedures without uh, without training and experience. Uh, not to mention that if, you, if you're in a situation in the field and you're thinking that your patient needs a, needs a burr hole uh, or a ventriculostomy uh, in, in order to save them, then, then the likelihood of that actually giving you any benefit is, is probably very, very low. So I, I think at this time, um, as interesting as they are, if you, if you can't get those done earlier, you can't get them to an individual who uh, knows how to do them, uh, I, I think it's best avoided. The, one of the questions comes up is, is if I can get the, the patient to, to a non-neurosurgeon, is there, is there anything available uh, that the non-neurosurgeon can do? And, and interestingly, there's, a, there's some data that, that comes out of UMM from, uh, from a guy named Thomas Scalia looking at decompressive laparotomy as an option. And the idea here is that you're, you're lowering uh, uh, or opening the compartments in, the, in either the thorax or the abdomen uh, to decrease peak airway pressures, and that, that seems to have an ICP-lowering effect. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether or not this 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 can or should be done. It's certainly not something that I think is uh, is is uh, is is or, uh, is something that should be done or uh, uh, or tried in the uh, in the in the field or in a, or even in a role one facility. But uh, if you are able to get the patient to a uh, uh, to a, a surgeon, then it's uh, it's certainly something uh, that's worth discussing, and, and it may be something that we discuss more and more. Uh, as TBI management uh, uh, evolves. And then for transport, you know, once again, I think it's important to pre-medicate patients prior to any significant movements. One of the other uh, considerations is, is uh, sometimes uh, you're very pressed for space when you're moving a patient, but if, if it's at all possible, I think it's important to keep that head of bed uh, elevated uh, to, to 30 to 60 degrees as you're, uh, as you're transporting the patient, whether that's ground or air. Um, it's, it's really going to make a difference for you, uh, and I, I think, and, and help you keep ICPs uh, uh, stable or, or uh, certainly to prevent uh, increases in ICP by facilitating that venous drainage. And then always tell any uh, aeromedical uh, evacuation asset that, that you have uh, or that you're operating um, that you're going to be moving a, a patient who has, uh, who has significant brain injury. Uh, once you get up into the into the air, especially uh, uh, if you're in a, a uh, vehicle that uh, that it travels at higher altitudes, you have to be concerned about the effect of low pressures uh, on oxygenation or, or what we call hyperbaric hypoxia. Uh, or uh, once you get above 8,000 feet, there's there's a, a low incidence, fortunately, but uh, but certainly a risk for something called uh, haste or high altitude cerebral edema. Uh, and and your, your flight medics uh, uh, should have information about that uh, or, and, and be aware of it, but just make sure that they are, they're very clear uh, that, that you have a, a severe, a moderate to severe TBI patient that you're transporting so that they can make uh, any uh, adjustments to their, uh, to their flight plan or to their care plan uh, that are necessary. So that concludes the, the discussion on um, traumatic brain injury in the, in the austere environment and in the prolonged field care setting. Uh, thank you very much for listening. That's another one for the books. Make sure to go to the site, www.prolongedfieldcare.org. Post your questions, post your comments, make your voice heard. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. 
Chao. 